Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast for Cultural Reformation brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. We are all culture makers, we are all cultural participants, and here we want to help you think about culture in a way that honors God and in a way that takes every thought captive to King Jesus. I'm Ryan Harris. This is episode 8 of season 2 of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. We just keep going, um, and as soon as there are no more areas of culture in need of reformation, I guess the podcast will retire, but until then, we're focusing this season on cultural pressure points. Where is the ground shifting under our feet? What does God's authoritative word call normal in every age and circumstance? Today, Joe Boot and I get back to the second half of our interview with Joshua Gilo at Truth Exchange, where he talks about his experience at the Revoice Conference. And if you ever wonder why this is such a critical area of culture, and, and people do, there are earnest and sincere Christians who have been tempted to think that the question of sexuality is largely a private matter. But if you've ever doubted that the issue of human sexuality is an absolute pillar of human civilization, just, just listen to the range of cultural areas that, that are influenced by this issue. Uh, we talk in this episode about art, about the family and marriage, the church and community, about, about wardrobe, about the way we dress, uh, so much more. I hope you enjoy it. Jo- Josh, can you tell, tell us about uh, one of the, or a couple of these, uh, these workshops that you had mentioned? These titles really, uh, really jumped out at me. Um, yeah. which I guess is kind of the point. You want people to go to your workshop. But uh, tell me about this one that's, uh, that you called Queer Treasures in the New Jerusalem. Yeah. And this, uh, this yeah. kind of resonates, or when, when I hear that, it kind of uh, makes me think of the whole, that whole scope of biblical history from creation to new creation. Um, and you've already mentioned that uh, at least some of, these, uh, some of these participants, some of these presenters and speakers... Um, understand same-sex same sex attraction as a creational good, as a creational norm. Um, but what, uh, like, the New Jerusalem, obviously, like, what's, uh, what, what, what's going to be redeemed in the resurrection from that, uh, that sort of queer identity? Right. Yeah, I, you know what, that was the one, um, I, and I try not to listen to, uh, or listen to a lot of the, the various podcasts that were going on about uh, the Christians who are waving the red flag and that were concerned about Revoice. That was the main workshop that everyone was talking about. Uh, so I so I enlisted to go listen to it, and I I have to admit I was somewhat disappointed with it. It was it was somewhat of a dud. And it uh, essentially he said, look, queer culture we have to look through it through the lens of what should be received what could be redeemed, and what could be rejected. He then went on, and this was done by a guy who works for Crew in Ohio, uh, Grantley uh, Hartley. And he went through the, let's see here, he went through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and 90s, just history of queer culture in America, uh, which the 50s was the scare area, that everyone was underground who was... uh, LGBTQ, the 60s was the mobilize, uh, mobilization era uh, where they get, got their power. Uh, the 70s was their flourishing era. 80s was the mortality. That's when the AIDS epidemic hit. And then um, the 90s was the area where they begin to thrive uh, as families. And this is where the chosen family was key because with mortality... Uh, they realized uh, that's when wills, uh, they started drawing up wills and arranging for people to actually receive benefit from being in relationships uh, that most laws would not allow for because at the time it was outlawed to be to be married. So as far as uh, just going through history, I, I thought, you know, that was informative. Uh, but in the end, he he quickly went over that, look, because of queer culture, we have Plato's philosophy. We have Tchaikovsky's great symphony pieces. Uh, some of the great uh, dance and art. It was all a byproduct of queer culture. And that's going to be, obviously, we should receive those things. What should be redeemed uh, is 
is this tension between um, what is sinful and then what uh, uh, how they would appreciate the arts. Um, so we have to, and then we have to reject things that the that Scripture clearly says is wrong, which again that for them was sodomy and and gay marriage. Um, so in the end, it wasn't that much of a. I mean, unless you want to, the whole idea that you can that you can argue that uh, Tchaikovsky's art or or Michelangelo Leonardo's art pieces were resolved right. than being gay. Well, this is this is part of the the, the sort of standard revisionist uh, history that's being foisted on the educational curricula throughout the West of of, um, of gay history and, um, and and gay icons within history and, and attempts to. Um, to, to read uh, late 20th century uh, postmodern queer theory and construction, the social construction onto uh, histories, past histories, and, and especially in the arts, um, is highly dubious. So uh, that, that was Grant's lecture. Um, I, again, they, they have this, it's, for them, it's very, the, the, it's strong in their thinking that uh, they have a better better eyes to see beauty than uh, the heterosexual man would. And then the same thing with, with the lesbian. The lesbian woman can look upon another woman with with a, almost with that first the first eyes of Adam and truly see it as as everything is. It's untainted by sin for them. Uh, it just becomes tainted with sin when the desire for sodomy takes place. So, the, so, so essentially, I mean, there's there's a there's a radical danger there. Um, there's there's an attempt to actually say that somebody who takes on this actually socially constructed uh, queer identity has better insight into the truth, aesthetic truth. You've just talked about there. They see beauty better. I mean, that's the area of values. Aesthetics is values. So you're talking now about uh, an ability to see truth uh, um, in a clearer way uh, if you are living out of this identity, which they are in some way or another saying it, um, is creational. Um, there is a concern here, that, and perhaps this is the subject for another podcast. There's other, other organizations in the UK where some of its leaders, similar type organizations, saying that you know, one is born this way um, and uh, opposed to um, any suggestion that um, a same-sex desire is a distortion or a dis-ease, uh, but is in fact somehow normative. And of course, if you start to begin to say that actually your insight into beauty, into aesthetics, um, which is actually one very important area of philosophy, um, is more profound if, in fact, um, you are um, you're identified with or you are living out of this sort of um, self-identification that's made creation or made normative in some way, well, then actually uh, we're, we're now talking about some sort of Gnostic um, uh, notion, a kind of sort of uh, a kind of, of secret knowledge that's accessible, accessible to, especially if you then start interpreting the history of the arts in terms of queer notions, queer theory, um, then you are actually beginning to say that there is a whole area of insight uh, basic to what the Bible would regard as anti-normative distortion and sin. Um, that there is actually a deeper knowledge and a deeper insight available through this uh, this identity. Yeah. Grant, he ended his lecture with this, that biological connections or biological families mean very little in the kingdom of God. The LGBTQ understand Mark 10 with a better scope and a better understanding of what true family is because they've been rejected by their biological families. Mm-hmm. Well, that's clearly clearly false. I mean, I've got a couple of questions for you on that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> for, first of all, um, in terms of well, let, let me make this comment first, and then come to a, to a question. Um, when you think about what actually the Bible says about the covenant, God's covenant, um, of course, the older covenant um, is is made with the Hebrews, 
who, yes, they were a people, of course, marked out by faith, but they were also marked out by blood. Uh, you know, they, they were, a, they were a, a covenant people, and, and, of course, you cannot read the Bible without recognizing the importance of uh, genealogy. In fact, the genealogy of the Lord Jesus is found both at the beginning of Matthew's gospel and early in Luke's gospel. And there in Luke, I think it takes us all the way back to Adam. But when you look at the promises of God, um, biological family is critically important. The promise is for you and your children and to all those whom the Lord our God shall call. In well, fact, we within, surely with, yeah, I mean, within Presbyterian <laughs> and, and paedo-baptist circles, surely uh, the recognition of the importance of um, blood of biological family in the covenant is critically important and many of these people claim to be part of the Presbyterian church um, the promise is to, in the Older Testament there is to a thousand generations a thousand generations of those who fear him so the idea that uh, biological family uh, plays some sort of minimal or lesser role uh, in the covenant in the kingdom, I think, is not only dangerous but ridiculous uh, from a scriptural standpoint, which leads me to the question uh, that I have really, Josh, with respect to this, is there seems to be the tone in all of this, at least the message as I look at this material and as I read and he- what's said and hear what's been said, um, that the, there tends to be this growing sense that uh, the the marriage covenant of male and female and their biological relationship, which, of course, I mean, let's remember that the very thing that qualifies marriage from a biblical standpoint as something other than friendship um, yeah. is the sexual relation. I mean, that's why if you don't consummate a marriage, you can have the marriage annulled. Um, I'm not just friends with my wife. She may be my best friend, but she is uh, romantically, sexually my partner. That's what what qualifies the marriage relationship. And, of course, the bringing forth of children Mm -hmm. and the the cultural mandate, the very fundamental mandate given to us there in Genesis is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, which, of course, uh, if homosexuality were creational, then there's only one generation that's possible. Um, the generation that God you know, created uh, ex nihilo, because there is no uh, other generation if homosexuality is creationally normative. Um, if everybody were homosexual, there would be no human race. Um, so there does seem to be a desire to make, um, and I don't want to use the term heterosexual, simply because I don't like the... Uh, the way in which, because homosexual was a term invented anyway in the 19th century, and it's, we've added gay and queer and so on and so forth. I mean, the Bible doesn't recognize any kind of homosexual identity. Um, the, the notion that, um, that marriage between a man and a woman uh, and their sexual union and the bringing forth of children is basic to the cultural mandate is actually the normative calling of human beings outside of a very specific and actually uh, unusual, non-typical calling to singleness, which we do need to affirm because singleness as a specific calling for a specific purpose is affirmed in Scripture. Nonetheless, marriage between a man and a woman and the bringing forth of children is the normative pattern. There seems to be a desire to either minimize or even deride that pattern and to say that other patterns are just as normative, like this other workshop, non-traditional families are biblical families. Yeah, and uh, there was actually a piece that a lot of the folks at Revoice were circulating right after the conference about the idolatry of heterosexual marriage. And okay, That's turning tables. Yeah. Yeah. So the the last uh, workshop that I attended was by Becca Mason, who is a lesbian, and she says that non-traditional families are biblical families. So the scriptures, when they talk about families, here's the list. I'll go through it. Adam and Eve, this is a family. Noah, his wife and children, it's a family. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Ruth, Killian, Naomi, Boaz. Hosea, Gomer, 
Joseph and Mary, Jesus and John, David, plus many wives, and Jonathan, Timothy. These are all non-traditional families, but they're biblical families. Uh, the exegesis there was just really sloppy. Uh, yeah, to say the least. Not wrong. <laughs> and and then it, it, the, it quickly wound to the discussion of how do you adopt children? Now, this, this talk, I, I was shocked when I saw this in the, the materials that was passed out once we had registered because this talk was not listed anywhere on their website. And I thought if anyone would be raising, if there's another talk that would garner some, somebody to raise a flag to, I would think it's this. Uh, because in the, the uh, description of the talk is about adopting children and being a foster. And so there was a lot of discussion about living in gay community. So living in a house with lesbians and homosexuals and getting your house in order so that the state can award you children for fostering. And then she says, as if, if you have a pulse, the state will take you. And you just, all you have to do is, it's, it's very simple, make sure everyone has a clean record as far as uh, with, with the law. And make sure your house is safe, make sure there's locks on your doors, uh, it's, uh, th th there's no, there no fire type hazards, anything that would cause any danger to children. You get a state representative will do a walk through your house. And once everyone passes a background check, they will award children for foster care. And if the state then deems that those children never go back to their legal parents, you can adopt those children. And I thought this is scandalous. I think like this is this is a reality that there are people that are sitting here who are broken, that are lonely, that are living in these this kind of situation that have clean records. And it's not going to be long before they're knocking on the door of the church and saying, "Are we now have uh, Sally and Tommy who we were had in foster care, and they are, we are now going to go through adoption, and we'd like them to become members at our church." Yeah, there seems to be a um, uh, there for, on the one hand a disregard for what the Bible teaches about the normative family and, and the situation in which children are meant to be raised. Obviously, many of those, many of the circumstances that you described um, in that uh, were used there, one can obviously see the objective of trying to uh, pull out those uh, non-normative um, uh, polygamous situations um, as a way of trying to say, well, you know, we can relativize the idea of family. We, we've got these various um, non-normative situations, which they would, I guess, would deny that they are non-normative, although Jesus' teaching on marriage uh, clearly goes right back to creation and tells us what the normative um, family environment is. But that seems to be a, a, an affirmation there, at the very least, that a child doesn't actually need a mother and father. Right. In fact, she, uh, Becca said, uh, people ask me all the time, wouldn't it be better if Sally and t uh, Timmy had a dad? And she says, sure, in an ideal world, but we don't live in an ideal world, do we? And that would also then mean that, there, there, that, that there's, a, there's a tacit affirmation there of um, homosexual people living together in order to adopt these children. Right. Yeah, the, the, the methods so of... So these supposed to be celibate houses, celibate houses that adopt kids? Well, the word celibate didn't come up. The community came up. Living in community. Um, it's interesting how, um, again, and this comes through whenever you're dealing with the LGBTQ lobby in all of its forms, um, the, the way in which homosexual culture has to live parasitically off the normative family, uh, which is access to children. Um, because uh, parenting is not a right um, uh, it's not everybody's from a biblical standpoint. I, I don't have a right to children. Um, children are a blessing uh, from the Lord um, that is uh, the result of obedience to God's command uh, in Scripture and the context for the bearing of children because the only context for sexuality, uh, the practice of sex in the Bible, is in 
the uh, family within the context of the marriage, the normative marriage unit in Scripture. So there is always this necessity for um, uh, the homosexual community to live parasitically off the normative family by wanting access to uh, children. Um, and that is, I think, that surely is highly problematic for the Christian. Um, that, 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 the, that the notion that if, if God ca- does not affirm um, those kinds of relationships as marriage, how could they possibly be the right environment in which to raise children? Yeah. From a biblical standpoint. Yeah. There's not. It's, it's, and it's, uh, you know, even down to uh, things that you would assume a parent would want to see in their children and how they're raised is, is jettisoned. Uh, everything from allowing, raising their, their children to play with, the boys to play with girl toys and, and the, the girls to play with boy toys, uh, thinking that there's a neutrality there in roles, uh, it's, it's completely jettisoned. And how they, they she, this woman is raising these these kids of hers. So you were hearing a kind of relativization of of, of gender identity as well, of sexual identity of male and female. So this uh, this uh, adoption is uh, is a sort of a means of of activism or of uh, evangelization in that uh, to that next generation. Very much so. It sounds like you know it's not what we're not dealing with with this conference. Uh, is simply an effort to um, uh, uh, create a greater degree of hospitality t- uh, towards those struggling with um, same-sex attraction. We're talking about what sounds like, in in some respects, a root and branch affirmation of gender of the gender politics uh, and of the social construction of the LGBTQ movement in the life of the church, or at least a recognition of these identities and some form of affirmation of them, even if there is not an open affirmation of the actual sexual practices themselves. Yeah, so I, I just want to get back to uh, the, whole, the whole discussion of, uh, of this, this issue with regards to the church. And Josh, like the church has come up several times in this conversation. You, you mentioned, I'm just, I'm just thinking about a, a couple of these things that you mentioned about this, uh, this pastor who was sort of repenting on behalf of his denomination for bigotry. Um, and then the people who want to, you know, go out to, go out to the gay clubs and then also go to, go to church on Sunday morning. And it's yeah. uh, like, I'm just wondering on the one hand, like, yeah, absolutely. The, the church and individuals in the church Ought to ought to repent of actual abuse towards gay people, actual discrimination of you know, barring them from coming in the doors of your church and these kinds of things. Like we sh- these, but if you like, if you want the church, the church exists to preach the word of God. The church exists to administer the sacraments and to practice church discipline. And you can't uh, like if you want a church that isn't willing to do those things that isn't isn't willing to declare the whole counsel of god isn't willing to call out and address in a godly and biblical way um sin in its uh, in its congregation then like you don't you no longer have a church like i you don't uh, you can you can go to the uh, you can go to the rotary club and get uh, get some you know get a community you can go out to the bar and find a community and find collegiality there like what is uh what what is the what is the end game here with trying to uh to bend the church to to these ungodly uh tendencies and dispositions yeah i i think it's it goes back to what joe was was saying earlier about this is the the latest movement towards liberalism in in the orthodox church um, and, and you just see it, you see it, folks buying into this wholesale. Um, and I, I think I, I have to wonder if some of the folks that are just doing this is because they are exhausted with the, the fight of the good fight of faith. You know, I, I sat listening to some, hearing some of these stories where 
they were raised in good godly Christian homes, didn't have, weren't molested, and they were just tired. And they just, they, rather than, than coming back, being delivered upon their shield, uh, they, they would rather just surrender and, and give in to this identity. Because here it's, it's a place where the fight's over. So there's a sense you're saying, Josh, in which the, the cultural juggernaut of, um, of queer theory, of LGBTQ uh, movement, um, that has been, um, I mean, you, you described uh, a few moments ago the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, early 2000s. Now we're, now we're pushing towards the latter part of the second decade of the 21st century. It's 60, 50, 60 years of, um, uh, of cultural propaganda. Um, and you're saying that, that the sort of the, the next generation now, the younger generation, the, the especially perhaps the millennial generation, the Z generation, but many of the Gen Xs as well, who are in leadership now in their 40s in the life of the church, they're, they're just tired. They're tired with the fight, and they almost feel as though um, there's no... There's no resistance to this Goliath. There's no way to stand up to this Goliath in the culture. Right. And, 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 and the icing on the cake is that you've got these leaders who have found the answer to uh, their questions of, well, if I don't have to fight this, uh, I don't have to hide anymore, and I don't need to fight the sin, this kind of sin in the way that I thought I had to, I can appreciate the other sex and desire them, but I just need to put away those thoughts of sodomy. Uh, and now I could go continue and find fellowship in churches and worship and sing all those hymns that I grew up singing, and no, and nobody is going to look down on me anymore. Was there and any I, dis was there any discussion? I, I yes, I I see what you're saying there. There's a there's an easier way out pastorally, it seems. It's not, of course, the, the fruits of this will prove that it is anything but the easy way out, but at least it appears to be the easy way out. Is there, was there any discussion about, you, you mentioned that it's about resisting the urge to the actual um, act of sodomy, but what about other acts that are engaged in um, by the, uh, the um, homosexual community? Was there any discussion about... Uh, those things, or was that very much just a uh, was that a taboo subject? Was that not talked about? Yeah, no, as I, I mentioned, there was some workshops that did discuss uh, how living a pure life and things of that nature, and and those just happened to be the ones I I didn't attend, which um, I'm disappointed that I didn't hear what they would say and how they would counsel that. I'll just say that from my observation. Uh, things that I would think would be unacceptable behavior uh, from a man to do to a woman in church was what I witnessed and encountered with other men upon men doing to each other in a church setting. Um, I would not think if you were to greet a, another lady at church, uh, when I see another gal at church and I'm with my wife, if, if I hug at all, it's a side hug, right? Where I'm seeing other men full embracing and hands are going way down below the waist into other areas, deep caressing, uh, massaging. And I'm thinking, this would not fly even in in any church, I would think. I mean, I... I yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, the attire of, of men there, I thought was scandalous. Uh, short shorts. Uh, uh, one man walked up and the tip of his penis is hanging out of his shorts. Um, I, I just was shocked. I, I just think that I don't, if you, if, we're, if you believe your community is one that is of holiness or is marked by holiness, I would, I would, I would dare say that it would also attribute to your tire as well. And that wasn't the case or their actions. Is there a, one of the things that, uh, that, presses in terms of the, the, the logic of this perspective, Josh, is that if we are to create a f uh, organizations and affirming communities 
for these identities in the name of Christian love, in the name of Christian hospitality, uh, in the name of uh, a, a cultural understanding that the Apostle Paul apparently did not have, according to many of these exegetes. Um, then if we are talking about affirming people's sexual desires what, uh, within the LGBTQ context, then um, what is the logical stopping point? Are we not then also of necessity, are we not forced by logic to say that if you say that homosexual desire is normative and creational um, and possibly may find its place in the, the New Jerusalem, which I think is a blasphemous idea, um, what is to say that people with bisexual desires or transsexual um, transgender inclinations that they are the, the, a different sex trapped in the wrong body or those who find themselves um, attracted to children which of course is a claim of many and growing movements um, in the west saying that they're born this way that's yeah. the desires they've always experienced that they've always had this is part of their identity or what of those who increasingly say that they're attracted to, to animals and have bestial uh, desire I mean, are we to create organizations and, and groups of affirmation for every kind of, of, if we make these things normal, if we do not hold fast to biblical truth in the area of male, female, normative human sexuality in the marriage covenant, in the marriage relationship, mm -hmm. and everything else is at the, at the very least a disordering or a dis-ease within creation because of the fall, and that any lusts and practices outside of the norm are in fact sin that need to be repented of, and that many of these things, like uh, gender dysphoria and so forth, and I would include in that some people who are struggling with same-sex attraction, can be helped um, by uh, various forms of counsel and therapy. If we don't hold the line on those things, what is the logical stopping point of any sexual desire being affirmed what's to say that those who simply um uh, experience um uh sexual addiction of a heterosexual nature uh, and, and and have tremendous desire for all kinds of other women outside of side of their wives are we just to say well we affirm that but we recognize that you're not practicing and we recognize your your sacrifice i mean um is there a logical stopping point if we do not hold the line as that this is actually heresy and outside of orthodoxy if we do not affirm what the Bible says about normative sexual desire. Yeah, I, I mean, when you, when you put it out like that and you, you push on that, that's, it's good, that, that, uh, that wall is going to tip right on over. And I, I think of in Proverbs, I mean, can a man put a, a fire into his coat and not get burned? And that's what they're doing. Uh, they would quickly respond and say, well, we believe in biblical sexual ethics. We do not believe that, that a man can marry another man and that men should be involved in sodomy. There, aren't, can't you guys be happy and leave us alone? I mean, that's, that's kind of what they're throwing up. You guys should be supporting what we're doing. Yeah. Well, of course, that's what we were told back in the 60s and 70s about uh, uh, legalization of um, same-sex behavior um, we just want to be left alone and before you know it it's uh, marriage um, so-called um, and, and demands for recognition by the state and by the church and, uh, and, and these, these moves to adopt and raise up children and adoption uh, and, the, and the raising of children and now we've got uh, in Ontario here yeah, and, and the, in, absolutely, that uh, there has to be a massive queering of the educational process. Um, and we've even got legislation in Ontario that allows up to four people to sign a contract to adopt a child. Um, so, you know, we, you're told one thing um, uh, 40 years ago, and now uh, we're facing a, a, a radical demand for even speech that would question the ideology to be censored. Uh, so I'm sure our doubts can be forgiven that the goal here is just for 
people with certain desires to be um, to be left alone. Yeah, no, there's like there, there's a reason that uh, that biblical marriage is so like, so strictly defined: one man, one woman, for life, to the exclusion of all others. Because as soon as you step an inch over that line, like there is no there's no uh, stopgap outside of that. Right. I think uh, like Chesterton says in uh, in Orthodoxy. People say, people say to me, like, oh, why are why are Christians so fussed about orthodoxy? Why are what does it matter so much that you were towing the line, holding the line on this? He says, like, well, that li- that line is a tightrope, mm-hmm. and on a tightrope, that inch either way means everything. Yeah. Like, if you if you get rid of that, if you if you open a, open that up to anything outside of that prescribed biblical mandate, like. Then the uh, the fence is down. I remember I remember being in a debate uh, a little while ago on television um, here, in which a, uh, a former Roman Catholic um, had written a book uh, called Epiphany, in which he had discovered the in fact the beauty and validity of. Um, homosexuality and the LGBTQ cause. Um, And in the course of this discussion uh, and my affirmation of biblical sexual ethics and values, um, I was accused of being obsessed with sex, uh, which was an interesting um, turning of tables. Yeah, it it wasn't you who wrote the book on sex, was it? It wasn't me who wrote the book, Epiphany. Um, But uh, this is kind of, again one of the things that's beginning to, to, to come out as though we, we are the ones who are somehow obsessed with this issue and uh, uh, why can't we leave well enough alone and so on. But when you look at Scripture, when you look at what God's Word and what the Christian Church has taught down through the centuries, um, we see the Bible opens with a marriage. We see that uh, God's relationship with Israel is described as one as a, a husband and bride. We see Jesus... Uh, entering the world through the Holy Family, um, and his first miracle is performed at a wedding, and the relationship of Christ to his people, uh, his church, is described biblically as a marriage, uh, and and requiring the fidelity of marriage. And then biblical history ends in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Uh, And so you have in marriage and in in normative uh, sexuality as God ordained it from creation, being, as one of my f- dear friends and a fellow of the Institute, Dr. Peter Jones, likes to say, and you know, who you know very well, Josh, as you work with Truth Exchange, is the cosmological key uh, to the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and that this issue is not simply about moralism. It's not, it's not about uh, a simple ethical argument about, well, we want to do this, you don't like this. Uh, you know, let us do it our way. This is about what is true about the cosmos. This is about much more than simply what people choose to do sexually. It's about what our sexual acts say about the meaning of reality itself, about the meaning of the cosmos, and of course about the meaning of the gospel itself. I mean, how can somebody uh, who doesn't have, uh, who may be a child, for example, who grows up with two women involved in lesbianism, um, and we preach the gospel that God is your father who sent his son into the world, but you have destroyed a normative understanding of marriage, and therefore you don't have that, that person has no concept of what fatherhood actually even means. We begin to undermine the very metaphors of the gospel um, that are given to us uh, in creation, that allow us to understand and interpret um, what the gospel is actually saying to us. That was so That's profound, uh, I, Josh. Yeah, he's he's say. speechless. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was my, that's what I wondered when Becca was talking about uh, the role of of God as Father. I thought, well, how can you do that when you totally deconstructed what a family is? I mean, it, it, just the whole, the, the whole, they attack so much the family, or spend so much time attacking the family, and then they, they're trying to rebuild family. 
But rebuild it from what? They're rebuilding it from a reconstructed pagan ideology that, that there is no distinctions anymore. Mm-hmm. And of course, Karl Marx understood this well. He said if you would uh, destroy the holy family, you must destroy the earthly family in theory and in practice. And I see this as a way in many respects of striking out against God himself. Because if you strike, you can't strike out, uh, you can't, no man can actually strike God, so he, but he can strike out at his image bearer, especially man as God's image bearer in male and female uh, and in the marital relationship as we see the image of God reflected there and as we bear God's image there. Um, Marx well understood, and these neo-Marxist um, movements that have come about and uh, gained strength in the 20th century that now drive the LGBTQ uh, um, movement and the queer theory ideo ideologues. Um, Marx understood it well, and they've been pressing his logic. Well, I was just going to mention, you know, the the other thing about with with Be Becca Ma Mason's um, workshop, she talked about then again also the living in, the importance of living in community and having adopted children or fostered children is that. Those who are living in community can take on the roles as, as, as grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, and so on. And so, again, it's a total redefinition of, of, of the biological family. Now, Josh, uh, just, just in closing, um, I guess two questions here. Um, first of all, what, uh, what would you recommend in terms, of, uh, in terms of further reading or other resources for Christians who are wanting to to get a more a fuller perspective on this issue, sort of where it is today, uh, what, what would you recommend that they read? Well, I would always recommend uh, TruthExchange.com. Uh, yeah, as, totally. As a, as a fine resource, of course, the, the things that uh, that you guys over at Ezra Institute are doing is always cutting edge. Um, and then I. I did, like I said, I had mentioned, I, I mentioned Nate Collins' book, and I'm always a huge fan of going straight for the, the horse's mouth. Um, so if if you want to hear some of the language that is being used by these folks and that they are trying to, uh, that are pushing this ideology, Nate Collins' book, All But Invisible, I thought was very helpful. Uh, Greg Coles' book, I can't think of the title, I'd have to go dish it out. Michael Brown, uh we had him at one of our events a number of years ago at Truth Exchange when we did Gay Identity and the Gospel. He has a book that I thought was very helpful, um, which is A Queer uh, queer Thing Happened to America. Right, yeah, yeah. And he writes about uh, queer culture in the United States, but then from a, a Christian uh, presuppositional or, or biblical worldview perspective. That was a great book, um, and I think it's helpful. And then... Uh, uh, Joe, Dr. Boot, he mentioned Robert Gagnon's, uh, actually anything that Robert Gagnon has written on the subject of homosexuality and scripture is is worth its weight in gold. Um, I don't know, I can't remember his, what his latest book is. Joe, do you remember what the title is? Um, I don't actually. Uh, is, uh, after, since um, the Bible and homosexuality, no, I'm not sure. We'll find that out. I noticed you just pronounced his name in the French way, though. I was noticing I that, did. too. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I work for a, a, uh, an ex-French missionary, so... <laughs> That's right. You just kind of absorb some of that? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, even when I, I, I lead worship at our church, I, 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 when, like, I say Roth instead of Rath. So certain words I've, I've, uh, I've, I've stuck with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess uh, f uh, finally, um, and I'll open this up to both of you. Uh, what for for Christians who are genuinely concerned with uh, with ministering to and speaking the truth to their uh, their gay friends and the people in their community who who struggle with different these different um, disordered sexualities. Uh, what uh, what can they? What can? What can they be doing? What should they bear in mind? Go ahead, Joe. Uh, you know, I've spent a lot of time uh, on on my own time uh, ministering to to those in the LGBTQ community, 
And one of the, the biggest tool, and it, this might sound uh, cheap to say, but uh, is is the power of prayer. Uh, and then, of course, is the Word of God. And uh, and then, of course, and then and then last, I would say that the thing, the the importance of community and inviting them into your home and loving them and walking with them, but not holding, not not uh, not bowing down uh, to any idol of convenience or compromise and hold the line with the word of God and of course always going back to prayer that's kind of been my prime directive yeah I think we have to um, remember that because of the, the witness of God's revelation in every human heart and in the context of creation um, the person struggling in this area and of course the one, one size does not fit all. So there are some people who have unwanted, are struggling with unwanted same-sex attractions. And there are, uh, there are others at the other end of the, 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 that spectrum who are um, aggressive activists for um, the lifestyle and so forth. Right. Um, and I think it was in um, uh, Robert Riley's book, um, just trying to remember the title of it. Uh, it will come back to me. Um, I don't really want to have to fill this in later. No, we'll uh, we'll find it. We'll put it. We'll put put a note in the when we put it up. So I think it was um, uh, Robert Riley's book where he actually does a very interesting analysis uh, showing that um, the the attempt to normalize. Uh, this behavior, these, this identity and behavior is actually driven by a rationalization. Um, the, the need to rationalize sin um, to remove the feelings of guilt. And if you can rationalize uh, sin away, the hope is that you'll be able to remove guilt. I mean, this in yeah. part, of yeah. course, is what Freud was trying to do. Um, it was that uh, although he could offer no forgiveness uh, and it probably and didn't really even recognize the category of sin as such. He tried to rationalize and describe uh, people's um, sexual feelings and desires and so forth yeah. in a pseudo-scientific way. Mm-hmm. And what we're faced with, I think, in our culture right now is an attempt to rationalize this idea of identity and these behaviors, to rationalize them as normative in order to, in, in the hope that it will result in freedom from guilt. And, uh, the, but the requirement is that everybody must participate in the rationalization for one to secure oneself against those guilt feelings. So if any organization or church or school is permitted to teach something contrary, the risk is always there that your rationalization of these things is challenged and guilt feelings return. And uh, the reason I think that's relevant to evangelism, we have to recognize that whatever um, sin we may be caught up in as human beings um, we are c- conscious of our sin and our brokenness. And whoever we are, whatever um, we've done in our lives, and whatever kind of sexual brokenness there is in our lives, we are conscious of um, sin in the face of a righteous God. And so I, uh, I don't think that we have to um, come at this in a moralizing way, right. uh, where we are just you know, citing Bible verses at people um, uh, in order to try and generate some sense of condemnation. Human beings, by virtue of creation, and as the word of God is normatively shared and the gospel is shared, people become aware and are aware of sin in their lives. And so we, we must ensure that just as we would be dealing with anybody else, dealing with any, any other failing, mm-hmm. um, that the gospel is, has power to totally transform, to forgive, to change, and to transform us. Um, and with that uh, preaching of the gospel, as I think Josh said so well, it comes a welcome. There is, a hos- there is hospitality. Yeah. There is a welcome into the congregation. There is a welcome into our home uh, to people who are sincere in the, in the search for truth and the and the wanting to know who Jesus Christ is and what the gospel really means, 
And, um, and then, of course, the pastoral challenge is something different as we move forward sure. in how we seek to help those who are struggling with all manner of, of um, temptation um, and uh, the, the testing that comes with repentance and faith in Christ and then, and then ongoing challenges of desires that go against what the, what the word of God requires of us. So I think um, compassion is required, compassion for uh, the homosexuals challenge, that is the person who is struggling with um, same-sex desire. Yeah. Um, there needs to be a recognition that we all need the preaching of the gospel. We all struggle with sexual brokenness to some degree or another. And uh, we need the grace of God in our lives to bring about transformation. And I think the less we make a huge deal of this idea of identity, the better. I would be for not using terms like gay and, uh, and homosexual because then you are applying a label to somebody that God does not give them. Right. Um, it's, yeah, like the, yeah. it's like the word secular needs replacing with profane because there is no sacred secular divide. In the same way, I don't think we should adopt the language that would seek to put these people into some kind of predetermined box um, but recognize that our identity is as creatures of God, as image bearers, and we can have a new identity in Christ. Um, and that our emphasis then becomes on what it means to live a holy and, and righteous life. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's, uh, that, was, that was really helpful. Josh Gilo, thank you uh, so much for your time here and uh, the, uh, the benefit of your experience at this conference. Joe, thanks a lot for being here again. Pleasure. Thank you, Josh, for, for joining us. Thanks for having me on the program. Oh, it's a lot of fun. Talk to you again soon. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation. If you would take a moment to like and subscribe and share the podcast on social media and on your favorite listening platform, that would be a big help to us as we continue to get the word out about cultural reformation to the glory of God. Don't forget to check out EzraInstitute.ca for more resources.